0: Welcome to episode eight of the Farm One podcast. I'm sitting here in Farm One in Tribeca. My name's Rob Lang. I'm the CEO and founder. I also have with me Michael, our VP of Corporate Development. Say hi, Michael. Hello. And then also we've got Jess Carroll, who's our Director of Technology. Say hello, Jess. Hey guys. Good to be with you today. We're gonna talk a little bit in a second about the news, but uh, first of all, I just wanted to uh, set up Uh, my conversation for later. So I'm going to be talking to Chef Russell Jackson, who uh, runs Reverence restaurant in Harlem. He's uh, a really experienced chef who started his career in Southern California, made his way up to the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, worked in, I mean, I want to say dozens of restaurants. It might not be dozens, but it's definitely more than a dozen different places. He's uh, owned and operated seven restaurants. He's now operating Reverence in Harlem. Um, And he's also a supporter of urban agriculture and of Farm One. He actually invested a little bit of money in Farm One a while back as well. So we're really, really thrilled to have him on the podcast. And he's got just a wealth of experience, whether it comes to restaurants, to starting a business, to also navigating COVID, navigating some of the other problems in the hospitality industry. Hugely experienced guy and a really big supporter of urban agriculture. So that's coming up next. Uh, and before that, we're going to dive into some news. I have a feeling it's going to be about GMOs. Uh, but what's going on in the news this week, Michael?
1: Thanks, Rob. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to your conversation with, uh, with Russell. So, uh, yeah. Um, so we've got an article uh, that was published today in uh, Scientific American. It's an opinion piece. Um, and one that I'm sure is going to get uh, a lot of people either nodding their heads or shaking their heads. It seems to be one of those types of topics. Uh, the title of the, uh, of the piece is called Stop Arguing Over GMO Crops. Um, it's written by a uh, postdoctoral research fellow, Sarah Garland. And she's a research fellow at the Earth Institute at Columbia University uh, she received her PhD in plant sciences from the University of Cambridge and her work is focused on generating new methods of plant gene editing for both basic research and agricultural applications. So the the story here is that, um, you know, obviously GMOs, particularly in the last, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years has really sort of come, come, come to a head, I suppose, um, in the industry and, and amongst consumers. On the one end, uh, for consumers, you know, they, we've got these labels now on a lot of uh, food that we see in our grocery stores and supermarkets. Um, that note that the ingredients are non-GMO, but then on the other end of things, you've got the industry, um, by industry, the, the agriculture system and the food industry and the food system, um, you know, obviously uh, claiming that there is a, a viable uh, positive uh, benefits of genetically modif- modified uh, organisms in, in, in the food system. Um, the point that she's making is that and i'll quote from from her from her article in order for the global for global agriculture to rapidly become more sustainable and climate resilient we must have the power to responsibly use every tool at our disposal including genetic engineering no single solution is a silver bullet she goes on to say that current research in plant biotech focuses on developing plant traits related to climate resilience and sustainability, such as drought tolerance, disease resistance, and capturing carbon from the atmosphere. So again, really emotional topic, it seems like. Um, Jess, why don't we start with, maybe if you can explain to us the pros and cons, at, at least as they exist in, in sort of common discourse in the industry of, of GMOs.
2: Yeah, uh, great. Thanks for that introduction to the the topic, Michael. Um, I think at first, I just want to say that um, at Farm One, um, we don't use any GMOs, but that's not because um, of any other reason besides that there doesn't exist any GMOs for the crops that we're growing. Um, GMOs are essentially uh, crops that have their DNA altered through some genetic engineering process. Um, There's a couple of different ways to do it. And the main crops that have GMOs approved for use are alpha, alpha, corn, soy, canola, cotton, sugar beet, all these things that are really industrial crops that are mostly not used directly as food. I think apples have a GMO, which is one of the crops that seems more like kind of consumer facing. But, um, you know, I think it's, interesting to see all these non-GMO labels because the scope of GMOs to date is still relatively small. And I don't see any time in the near future, farm one even having the opportunity to use a GMO crop because they're so expensive to develop and they don't exist for leafy greens and things like that. Um, So, you know, I'll just start talking about some of the pros um, of GMOs that have been cited. Um, You know, they can enhance basically properties of a plant. So they can make plants more nutritious, potentially. They can make plants more tolerant to pests. They could make plants more tolerant to, let's say, an early frost or whatever particular environmental conditions exist. Um, And one of the more recent ones that has gotten a lot of excitement is that they can make plants potentially more sustainable. Um, And the one kind of main way that this might be able to be done is by improving what's called the root to shoot ratio of a plant. So essentially creating more biomass in the root zone, which would allow the the plant to convert more atmospheric carbon into the ground, into the soil where it will remain and help mitigate some of the impacts of global warming through carbon capture. Uh, Another sort of sustainability benefit is um, allowing microbes to uh, create better colonies around the root zones to fix nitrogen. Right now, that's mostly uh, only done through with legume crops naturally, but there's a potential to uh, to make other crops be able to fix nitrogen as well. Um, and so in terms of the, the sort of scientific cons, I think there's a lot of debate. There has been some um, sort of debate over if there is any negative health concerns of, uh, by altering the DNA of a crop, or maybe it would uh, create an allergen where an allergen didn't exist before. And I think, uh, you know, most of the claims have counterclaims when it comes to the negative health implications of of GMO crops. And so, I mean, I don't want to make one claim or another, but it seems like the jury's sort of still out there. Um, I think where the real cons come into play are more of the sort of corporate or political um, Uh, impacts that GMOs have had. So um, one of the really common GMOs is crops that are what's called Roundup Ready. So basically, um, crops have been genetically altered to be able to be resistant to glyphosate, which is the uh, chemical that makes up Roundup. And so farmers can buy the Roundup Ready seeds and plant them. And then they can just use one herbicide and pesticide that's Roundup and they can apply it to their field and it's very simple um, and it will kill everything but the plants and it makes farming a lot easier because you don't have to sort of deal with all the um, hardships of trying to you know weed and, and kill pests that are, are uh, influencing your, your acreage because the roundup does a pretty good job The the one issue with this is that uh, it kind of promotes people to just continue using Roundup and using it fairly liberally because you're already paying a premium for the Roundup Ready seeds. And so you might as well get the benefit of it by continuing to buy Roundup and applying it. And I think there are some concerns that uh, the weeds that are most resistant to Roundup will continue to propagate, and it will sort of create a super weed. I don't know if that has necessarily panned out, but I think one of the, the real difficulties is it really makes farmers reliant upon uh, Monsanto, the company that, that owns Roundup, um, and it makes their margins smaller because they're continuing to buy from this big giant conglomerate. Um, and I think there's other concerns that, for instance, GMO seeds, really, you can't propagate them for legal concerns. And so farmers are, um, you know, have been for the last thousands of years saving seeds that have performed better and then planting them the next year. And then this cycle that's very distributed has um, improved the yields of seeds um, through seed saving. But I think as farmers become more reliant on GMO seeds that either genetically can't be propagated or legally can't be propagated, to the next season, they're sort of missing out on the opportunity to, genetic, to improve the, the genes of their seeds through through um, selection. And so um, with that, it sort of you know takes more uh, power away from the small farmer who would otherwise maybe be able to better their crop the next year by their own um, volition. So that's sort of my summary of the pros and cons of GMOs. I'll hand it back to, to Michael and Rob to see if there's any response to that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who's more of a marketer than a genetic uh, scientist, I guess you know my my take on it is that GMOs has been a sort of failure of marketing over the past fifteen years, um, in that it's if you ask a typical consumer on the street. <laughs> Uh, even what is a GMO, what is a genetically modified organism? I think you're going to get several different answers. And if you ask them to name a benefit that may have accrued from some of this work over the past 15 years, I think you're going to struggle to get a clear answer from everybody. Um, And so as a you know, if you look at it as a food industry, no one has taken a lead to try to educate a consumer on what might be a benefit of GMOs, and no one's really taken a lead to demonstrate specifically with a, with a product, you know, what, what have we done? What, what have we achieved, you know? Um, and I think that in an age where we're increasingly, as consumers, reading the label or reading the back of the label and trying to under, understand what's gone into, you know, a product, uh, a piece of food, uh, things like that. GMOs just stand out again as this sort of like very muddy kind of idea for a consumer. Um, and it you know, if you take it one step further, which is to talk about this roundup uh, ready uh, you know suite of, of offerings from Monsanto, yeah, it just starts to as a consumer, it starts to make you worry even more. It means, OK, actually, does it mean there's even more pesticide on this product than there would have been, um, you know, because then the use of pesticide starts to come into question. And and of course, like glyphosate as a substance is, you know, in the news, I would say every couple of months now with different, uh, you know, cases trying to examine whether it causes cancer um, and other kind of things. So. So, yeah, I, I see GMOs as a failure of marketing, I think that um, if you if you, had, if you could rewind time, if you were like the GMO representative, whoever that is uh, around the world, if you could rewind time, I think it would have been wiser to try to identify a very, very niche, small, just example product where you could say, hey, look, we've made this tomato taste a little bit better using GMO techniques. Um, and look at it, isn't it amazing? You can buy it now. Um, but there's nothing like that on the market. There's nothing really like that where a consumer can see a, a benefit to them. And I think you know, the, the last sort of piece of it for me is that um, you know, if, you, if you think about it, a lot of consumers will think that there are GMOs everywhere now. And as Jess was saying, there aren't really that many products that you're gonna come in contact with as, a, as an eater, as a food consumer, uh, they're gonna be GMO. Um, and, and so, you know, the people sort of forget that actually, if you want to bring out a trait in a plant, it's still quicker, much cheaper to breed and select for variation. Uh, the way that farmers have been doing for centuries or millennia, it's much, much cheaper and more effective to do that in the short term than to try to develop a complex GMO program for a seed, which is probably going to cost you billions of dollars and take, a decade or so now that's going to change over time where, you know, creating genetically modified organisms is going to be easier and cheaper. But at the moment, most, you know, plant selection, most uh, seeds are created through breeding rather than GMO techniques. And I think I think consumers don't really even know that because there's so much conversation about GMO, not really that much about traditional plant breeding techniques. Um, And so the whole sort of thing seems to be out of whack in the media. uh, Still,
2: that's my that's my take. I think um, the other thing I'll add to that is like those who are proponents of GMOs um, believe that they can be, that GMOs can be the solution to some sort of our agricultural problems. And I think if you look at the, since the 1990s when GMOs came out and there was this big promise of enormous gains in yield, GMOs have not had the same success as other um, agricultural technological transformations like the Haber-Bosch process that you know, doubled yields almost instantly when um, we applied uh, fertilizers, chemical fertilizers to fields at a very low cost. Um, so I think, you know, as Rob was saying, it is a marketing problem, but also that the technology isn't as clear cut as a winner as some of the other sort of agricultural innovations of the past 150, 200 years.
1: How much of that is sort of a part of, you know, okay, so if it's been since the 1990s, you know, let's call it two decades or so of research has gone into it. Is it just the natural sort of science and research cycles? Or would you have expected sort of greater performance, even by this
2: stage? I think you would have expected um, greater performance. I mean, if you look at, there's, there's all this promise that uh, GMOs might decrease pesticide application because they'll become more plants can become more pest resistant. But if you look at uh, pest application, pesticide applications, they haven't necessarily gone down across the board for GMO crops, um, and and I don't mean necessarily just Roundup Ready crops, but in crops in general. Um, and with respect to yields, there was has been an increase in yields um, for you know a long time. And it hasn't necessarily accelerated or hockey pucked like my, people might expect um, once GMOs started coming to market um, during the 90s and 2000s.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob, to your point, um, so Dr. Garland, the author of, the, uh, of this article, she does note that, um, and I'll quote this, for too long, the rhetoric on genetic engineering and agriculture has been polarized and reasoning has been clouded by emotion instead of based on evidence there is fault on both sides for the existing antagonism immensely successful marketing strategies have been based on inciting fear and distributing false information large corporations have sown mistrust i mean this seems to sort of you know be just a repetition of, of you name it and it seems like on sort of science and you know you could call it activism yeah and on one side and 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 uh, uh, sort of the industrialized food system in this case versus anything else, um, you know, on the other. You know, for uh, obviously one of the hot topics today is COVID and, and, and the vaccines. I mean, this, this Pfizer vaccine is based on an entirely new technology which looks at the genetics, um, you know, of the virus uh, and, and prints sort of a, uh, a replica of, of that code that we inject into people you know, with, with, with the hope that, that it does deal with this virus. So you know, it seems like it's another one of these cases um, where you know, one side sort of, it, it's that mistrust that we see again. And, and you know, it feels like it's one of those where as much transparency, as much openness in the industry as possible is probably gonna help us um, in, in understanding. And you know, for the things that we don't understand yet, um, again, so openness and transparency can only help here.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that, you know, certainly in the US over the past four years, you haven't seen a consistent message about science, even from the administration, right? And so you've got people at the very highest level of government trying to, uh, A, so mistrust about what scientists do. And then, you know, in the worst case, giving off a crackpot theory about injecting bleach into your arm to stop a pandemic or something, you know, it, it just couldn't get more ridiculous. And so when it comes to quite a nuanced topic like GMOs, where, you know, there are potentially huge advantages to to pursuing this technology, but there's also risks, you know, there's risks of, uh, for instance, seeds that are GMO seeds getting broadly disseminated into uh, the ecosystem uh, potentially you know spreading and then you know various negative traits being adopted by larger larger amounts of um, you know uh, plants <laughs> around the world there are potential dangers there as well right so I think I just think having a sophisticated discussion about science uh, in America in the 21st century is just really really hard and so yeah like it, it falls into this pattern of you know, GMOs, you've got traditional anti-vaxxers who, oh my God, you know, causing so much, so much problems. And then now, you know, questioning about the vaccine that's been developed for COVID. Um, I think it's really worrying. And I think that, you know, the, the last piece I would say about that is that if you look at our food and nutritional advice, I think there's also just a lack of clarity there. Well, people, you know, in the media will get obsessed by blueberries having amazing antioxidant properties but sort of communicating it as if you could eat you know, fried chicken your whole life and then just have a pint of blueberries and then you'll be fine because they've got the antioxidant and just not having that sort of subtlety of discussion um, as well. It just fits into that pro- problem. And, I, and so I think like the media as a whole has a duty to explain science a little bit better. I think consumers have a right to, of course, you know, consume the information they want, but, you know, as a as a duty to communicate information that is accurate true and nuanced you know the media needs to do a lot better on that i think
1: well i'm going to try that fried chicken blueberry diet i'll (laughs) report um so you know you you brought up labeling right so that that's an interesting one for for us in the vertical farming industry um you know what what are the efforts there to uh, could could you guys talk a little bit about the efforts there in terms of you know are there is there a new category that that can emerge out of it because organics doesn't quite fit the bill for what we do um, and uh, I know there's some industry initiatives but how how should we as an industry think about that.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you if you ask a typical consumer again what organic really means, I think they will mostly say pesticide free. I think some of them will have a conception that an organic farm is there to preserve soil integrity and, and this kind of thing. But beyond that, the organic label pretty much is just a proxy for pesticide free, I think, for most consumers. And so If you want to look at vertical farms where the vast majority are pesticide free, but also do a lot of other things to ensure food safety and consistency and and product quality, that organic label doesn't really capture it. Um, But, uh, you know, at the same time, no producer, no supermarket wants to have a label that has 17 different things listed on it. It's just a waste of time for the consumer. And so I think there's, you know, we're part of uh, an initiative within the controlled environment agriculture industry to have Um, some better labeling and that labeling um, to be something that's clear, that um, ensures a certain level of behavior in the industry, a a standard, if you will, a self-certification standard. Um, and, And hopefully, you know, that's something that we can come up with as an industry. But I think that um, Yeah, you're, you're definitely going to see better labeling, I think, over the next few years. And I think part of that is also about transparency as well. So just understanding for the consumer like, oh, OK, this is much more traceable. This is a product where you can control the environment much more, which means that, you know, uh, food safety or, or um, Problems like the E. coli outbreaks or salmonella, that kind of thing, is much, much, much less likely to happen in a controlled environment facility. And so, this labelling sort of is there to obviously um, reassure the customer a little bit more. Although, of course, on any given label, you can't say that there is no, you know, risk at all in this food product. So, it, it, with all that kind of new labelling, you have to sort of strike a balance between information, simplicity. Um, and you know, not making claims that that you can't really back up. Um, I don't know what you think, Jess, in terms of labeling efforts over the next few years and what might happen.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. Sort of like the organic label has a sort of fuzzy definition. I mean, even the notion of pesticide-free is a bit fuzzy. Like, does that mean no chemical pesticides? Does that mean no organic pesticides? Does that mean zero pest control? Um, what is a pesticide? I think um, more than anything, um, not, not, instead of just there being sort of a vertical farming or indoor farming specific type of label, there really should be uh, a label that indicates some sort of sustainability um, measurement. You know, how much carbon um, was mitigated through the growing of this kind of product or something like that. The the calorie um, label on Nutrition labels seems to be sort of an accepted, non-contested um, standard. That like, you know, I think there are some issues with it, but for the most part, it allows you to compare um, different products to one another. And I think um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the growing paradigm on the label, but more quantitative information to give transparency to the consumer about, you know. What's behind the scenes, and what what are they what are they consuming, um, not just right then and now, but like in terms of how it was produced.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's an opportunity here for vertical farm and and uh, vertical farms in the industry to take a proactive, sort of you know, be proactive in this in in this instance, and really sort of create a competitive advantage, right, as a business to say yeah, we, we are A, a lot more sustainable in these ways, and here's how we can prove it to you and show it to you and be open about you know, the types of uh, uh, chemicals or the types of nutrients or the types of um, whatever ingredients go into what we're doing. Um, Jess, you had said that there aren't many GMO seeds or GMOs in vertical farming right now because they haven't been developed in leafy greens. That must be on the horizon, right? I mean, we're we're seeing a lot more of this. Are you you not seeing uh, the industry start to look towards it?
2: No, I think there are companies focused on breeding seeds specifically for the indoor environment, but in terms of genetic modification, I don't see that on the horizon. I think if you look at the scale of corn, soy, canola, sugar beet production, it's just so much more than vegetable category in its entirety. And so, you know, as I mentioned, the, the cost of developing these seeds is, is really immense. And it just, I don't think, makes sense for the type of market um, that the leafy green categories falls into. Um, You know, the the GMO grains that are produced do end up in a lot of things, a lot of processed foods. They end up as cattle feed or other livestock uh, feed, you know. And so it's not to say that, you know, you go to the grocery store and it's unlikely that anything's gonna have any type of GMO grain in it. But um, in terms of the vegetables you get in the produce section, except for a few uh, items is unlikely that you're going to come across a GMO product there. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm
1: sure this debate will rage on regardless of this podcast, <laughs> So, but uh, that's the news for today.
0: Great. Thanks, Michael. All right. We're going to go next to our interview with Russell Jackson. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, we're here with Russell Jackson. He's sitting there. I think you're sitting at Reverence in Harlem right now. I'm at the beautiful. restaurant. This
3: is the beautiful commission piece we had done. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, great. And and you're someone who... Um, you know, you've talked about cooking for other people pretty much from the age of three, I think. That's right. Um, but you've been through all things like California Culinary, culinary Academy. Uh, you opened a restaurant straight out of culinary school. You've worked as a private chef. You've opened multiple restaurants. Um, and so, you know, one way I've been thinking about it is you've, you've actually been cooking for other people for about 50 years. Is that is that, 40. Is that right? Yeah, 40 oh, years. 40 oh, no, years. <laughs> <laughs> about 40 years. so that's a long time. And you know, you've obviously seen a bunch of ups and downs and all that kind of thing, but you've stuck with it. And I guess the fundamental question is, is why, like, why do you cook for other people? What is it about it? Why do you do it?
3: <laughs> well, you know, of course at this, at this age, being 57 years old, now you can sort of look back and tie everything to a story. <laughs> so I tell a yeah. lot of stories, my crew, my crew loves it and hates it. But, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm one of those people that I've gone through so much time and so many evolutions and, 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 uh, uh ups and downs of the industry, sorry, uh, the, 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 incredibleness <laughs> of sitting in Manhattan and, and, and
2: <laughs>
3: which I love, you know, I mean, if we were in California, then it'd just be a chopper overhead so <laughs> or a police chase. Yes. Um, uh. So one of the interesting things I I think that um, uh, in my career has been that I, you know, I, like everyone has struggled with what I do, what I do for a living. And um, in my life, my previous life in California as a a restaurateur and a chef, uh, I actually was, wasn't even a restaurateur at that point. I was, I was building up to that idea and, Uh, working towards that goal of opening my first bricks and mortar restaurant. And, and uh, uh, I was really emotionally struggling with um, the fact that I was working these insane hours. I was working myself down to the nub every day and um, uh, emotionally I was burned out. Physically I was done and I couldn't understand what the rationale was behind going and being, abusive to myself, abusive to the people around me and trying to cook food. Like it didn't, like it wasn't meshing, like the, the, the ideology, the philosophy, the metaphysics of it just wasn't coming together. And I turned to, at the time I was seeing a, a a very lovely guru, uh, who uh, I will leave unnamed, uh, who was advising me in my life. And, uh, he said, you know, um, he told me a series of stories, but one of the stories that he told me was, he said, you know, when you think about an ashram, you think about a temple, and you've got all of these monks that are there, who does the cooking? <laughs> and, like, instantly my brain went to, well, it's the low man on the totem pole, it's the scrub that just walked in off the street. And he's like, no, the only person that handles food is the highest priest person that has the most clarity because that individual himself is the person that's handling the food that you're ingesting in your body that's not only sustaining you physically but emotionally mentally metaphysically and that sort of flipped the switch for me that gave me the deeper understanding that there was an importance a key importance to what I do and why I do it uh, and it gave me solace in the reality that i was doing the right thing and walking the right path to be of service and not everybody wants to be of service you know uh, there are plenty of people on both sides of the spectrum but I, my father being a, a physician and my mom being a homemaker and a designer and like my dad being uh, an enormous uh, uh advocate within the medical industry uh in my upbringing uh the 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 freedom fighters that were in my family the artists that were in my family there was always this this propensity to do something for do something bigger to 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 do something beyond ourselves and our our personal needs uh so that was ingrained in my life and uh, I've always called that into my life so it was just it was um it was a it was a difficult decision and i have definitively and again i've i've struggled with it but you start to come to terms with this is who i am and this is what i do and this is why i do it and once you start to have those touch points then you can really start to accelerate you can really start to build on those build on those skills and and um uh i you know again like my heart has always been in this is what I do and why I do it. And, and, and I, as I've gone through this, you know, I've learned more about uh, why I do it and, and what inspires me to do the work that I do. And, and um, I think when you get to that adult part of your life and start to really sort of get settled in it, Uh, all of these interesting light bulbs start getting turned on and you start picking up and noticing things that you would have never have imagined. And um, and it's a a moment of clarity. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I, I had been cooking professionally almost 30 years uh, and didn't really understand my inspiration. I mean, I was always inspired, but I didn't understand it. And I had gone through a very, very, you know, I'd closed – Uh, my restaurant in San Francisco, which was the biggest bonfire of cash I had ever gone through in my life. Uh, It was, you know, I mean, putting a restaurant down is, uh, it's, it's, it's a massive grieving process. It's a, it's a very emotional, uh, disturbing place to, to, you know, because you put so much of your heart and energy into, into doing this. Uh, and I don't think people really understand that. I don't think people understand the level of sacrifice that restaurant people make. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and with very little accolade and very little reward, um, people have a lot of misconception about this industry. And um, and it doesn't help, you know, like Food Network and, you know, these shows, you know, these networks and stuff that sensationalize all this garbage don't really get it. And they're not very supportive about the reality of what it what this is. Um, uh uh, so, uh, you know, you're always sort of fighting against those tides and, uh, uh yeah. I, I was very fortunate that, uh, you know, I, I'd closed Lafitte within the week food network had called and said, Hey, we want you to be on iron chef. And I was like, well, where the fuck were you guys like six months ago? <laughs> and I had to pull a team back together. And fortunately, you know, my best friends, Dominique crin she, she said, Hey, look, come to Atelier hang out here, work in the kitchen, get your brain going, write menus, just get cooking with us and we'll we'll prep you and train you for your fight. And, uh, uh, you know, knowing that she had won, uh, I think she beat the shit out of Michael Simon. um, uh, And, you know, all the San Franciscans at that point had been winning. uh, And this was what what we ended up filming was the final season. Uh, Just having that, month of spending time with her in the kitchen, as close as we were even at that point, uh, and all the times we had cooked together, the thing that I hadn't realized was how she created and getting that exposure to her process allowed me to recognize that within myself. And the thing that I recognized was uh, the thing that really clicks for me is music. And it always has been like my entire career, my entire life. Music has been the defining driving force for me. And those songs, that soundtrack of my life pulls back to a touchstone of an experience or a story or a a night or a day or a person that allows me to encapsulate a, a mood a feeling, a taste, a smell that, allows me to create. So, you know, it's like everything that we do here at Reverence in trying to, and it's very difficult to explain the the connection of the music to the food. Uh, It's just, for me, I haven't learned how to explain it yet. Uh, It's still the inspiration, but I I just haven't figured out the, the right technique or way to give people a more clear vision. So what we do is we put the story out in front of it. Mm-hmm. So here at Reverence, when we were doing indoor dining, it was about the connectivity of the dish being represented by a story, which yeah. really was the nucleus of a song or an album or something musically inspiring.
0: Yeah, uh, and now well, the a, we, yeah, I mean, there's there's like a connection there, right? If you're a musician, you're kind of offering something up. And you're, it's a, it's a gift, you know, and as a chef, you're offering something up and it's a gift and it it has like encapsulated in it, some of your feelings and thoughts and your background and everything. Right. And, and you're vulnerable in the same way, I guess, you know?
3: Yeah. And I I mean, my ex-wife and I, uh, in being two excessively creative people, uh, in living in the same household, you know, we, we recognized that there were so many similarities about Uh, what we do and how we do things and how we create uh, and as as well as so many elements of the business side of it that that mirrored each other and um, to almost to a depressing point (laughs) 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 tragically ridiculous it is Uh, but
0: yeah okay okay and so you're sitting here now in reverence this is your restaurant in Harlem Um, it's a if I think if we were to turn the camera around, there's a big counter behind which chefs normally stand. And it's a very open uh, kind of kitchen. And you've talked in the past about how you like that openness, being able to see the customer and that kind of thing. And for me, I think there's also um, a bit of an expression there of like, you know, you want to see people tasting your food, right? Like this is, this is why you go to work every day in a way, right? To, to see that place. It's an exchange. Like it's, a, it's an yeah. energy
3: exchange. And it's funny because, um, I I've been fortunate in my life that the greater majority of all the ra- restaurants and jobs that I've had have been in open kitchens and not everybody has that experience. A lot of, a lot of chefs, a lot of cooks, uh, purposely go to the kitchen because they don't want to be exposed to the clients. They, they want to hide out in the kitchen. And, uh, and a lot of people don't understand that, that place you have to sort of get into in handling and balancing that relationship between cooking service, expediency communication, uh, and, and, and customer relations. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I worked in a Frank Gehry-designed restaurant in Southern California, which was this amazing Hispanic uh, cuisine restaurant uh, that, uh, uh, ha- that was inspired by Patricia Quintana's work and, and uh, some of her uh, collaboration with us. And, um, and the food was amazing. I mean, the food was just downright amazing. It was a, a very, very special kitchen, uh, and it was wide open. Like there's nowhere to hide in that place, um, yeah. but it was in, in itself its own little encapsulated stage, and um, the experience and the interaction and learning how to be just part of a team and a unit that was functioning out in the open uh, was very special. And you know, my last restaurant, Lafitte, was another wide open, transparent. You know, and for me, it, it's important because it's not just. It's not just efficiency. It's about the transparency so people understand the elements of the work and the the, the juggling, the things that we have to do. It's that performance that makes the, the experience that much more intimate for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and it serves a purpose. You know, This is a 900 square foot, you know, <laughs> kill box. <laughs> You know, it is, it's direct, it's visceral. If something goes wrong, you see it, you hear it. You know, if we, if we mess up, you see it, we, you hear it, you understand. Um, And, and, and it's, again, it's a high wire act, you know, because we're not, we're not huddled up in some corner of a building. And, 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 you know, you know, it's like, you see all the magician's tricks here
0: Yeah. And I I think, I mean, the other thing that I've found, you know, when I've been lucky enough to eat at counter restaurants, whether that was sushi in the past or, you know, other places, even like a terra upstairs, which has a counter and like there's a, um, There's a thing I think that happens, especially when you're the guest of a chef, is that there's a generosity that you experience that you, I think a lot of people who eat out at restaurants don't realize until you know someone who works in the restaurant, they know you're coming and you get, actually, sometimes it's like an onslaught of like dishes and like, okay, I want to show you this. I want to show you that I want to, I don't want you to leave until you've tried this thing and it's a generosity, but it's a, it's a thing that sort of comes. That's not a thing where someone wrote a list of all the things they had to do today. That's something that's coming from someone's heart, right? It's like, I want you to see this and I'm offering it up, you know?
3: You know, I mean, again, like I said, we in what we've done here and what I've, what I've successfully built here uh, that we're unfortunately not able to function as it was originally designed uh, uh, at this point in time was, you know, I wanted to be able to tell a story and I wanted to be able to take people through a journey of my experiences and my love for for California and California food, uh, uh, and that ideology behind what represented farm to table and fresh and local and sustainable, and you know uh, uh, that that transparency of quality that that sadly so many restaurants and and businesses lack right now. And that we wanted to, I wanted to allow my staff to have the ability to be able to take the information from me as a story and be able to tell that story in a way that's unique to them in their voice. Because otherwise, I'm just giving them a list of ingredients and specials and information and they're just like an automaton going up and blah, 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 blah. You know, know, and there's nothing there it's soulless, you know, it's like, let them tell the experience about, you know, like I made this like five times cause I kept messing it up. And, you know, like it's, it's you know, like the importance of it. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I got to, I got to eat this uni for the first time in my life. And it ta- like the chef describes it as, as I said in the press before, <laughs> it's like kissing a mermaid, you know, it's like the chef describes it this way, but I think it tastes like this. And, uh-huh. you know, it's like, those are those things that they're just not endearing they're just not endearing but they are their truth you know their reality yeah. and and that's yeah. what that's like that's what the modern restaurant should be that's what the modern independent restaurant should be and I, I, you know and I'm praying to God that um, it still exists when when all of this starts to shift I mean hooray they started vaccinating people today that's awesome. Wow but we're still six months or more out from uh, a place of cautious safety again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's talk about that for, well, we'll we'll get onto that I think in a minute, but give us a little sense of your journey. Obviously uh, you know, grew up in Southern California, ended up in San Francisco Bay area as well, eventually made the move over here uh, to New York city um describe for that that us that journey and also what caused you to to move over to the east coast what caused you to ba- abandon all the amazing produce of california abandon the summertime the sea the ocean all the, and then come over to the east coast
3: Done. yeah <laughs> well you know i i think uh, again you 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 go through phases in your life and you go through experiences in your life and and um i had i i was born and raised in, 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 Southern California. And I lived all over Los Angeles, primarily on the, I, I should say, to qualify. I only stayed on the West side. Uh, I would not cross over the Hills uh, or go down below, always in uh, 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 the main part of Los Angeles Basin, And, uh, and, yeah. uh, uh, and I loved it. And growing up there it was in the, in the sixties and seventies, it was, it was a unique and wondrous and fun place, and it was there was a level of innocence that was that was there, and that slowly morphed into this very dysfunctional, weird, uh, uh, hidden agenda place. You know, it's like it was the the, the Janet Jackson, "What Have You Done for Me Lately" uh, syndrome. That started to occur, and uh, I got very jaded, and uh, I it it just became excessively uncomfortable for me to be in. As well as uh, I went through some very turbulent uh, uh, periods of time uh, in uh, um <sighs> opening my restaurant, or you know, opening my restaurant, closing my restaurant in Southern California. Uh, then going on to work for Wolfgang Puck, which was in itself a year of absolute sheer insanity. Uh, uh, my wife uh, becoming a breakout, uh, my ex-wife becoming a breakout star and an international uh, uh, thing uh, that then imploded uh, uh, having a very public, e, you know, he's e-tales uh true hollywood story uh uh, marriage dissolution with paparazzi chasing zany you know all kinds of weird bullshit uh uh like the fact that i found out i was getting divorced by listening to howard stern
0: oh okay i didn't know about that one all right (laughs)
3: yeah yeah i mean i can laugh about it now but oh god it was it was a little bit of a traumatic day for me um and then, uh, you know, going through that period and, and then working for the County Crows and, and traveling on the road and end up finally uh, 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 realizing that I didn't have to stay in Los Angeles any longer, that I didn't have to sort of stay in that, that cycle of drama and, and insanity and that an option, opportunity came for me to, to, to move to San Francisco. Uh, I'd gone to school there uh, and, and loved the city. And and thought, why not? And uh, ended up moving there, and and started to ingrain myself there, and really evolved as a chef. Started to learn the craft more about the the really digging down deep. Like I think that in Los Angeles, there was a creative side of me, and I was sort of chasing a lot of ideas and trying to trying to come to terms with who I was as a person and as a chef, as a man. And then ultimately um, that move to San Francisco started to really shape me as who I was, who I was to become as a chef and what was important for me, what was where I wanted to actually sort of, what I wanted to actually represent in food and then ultimately opening my restaurant there uh, going through that very long, difficult tenure process uh, uh, and then the, the absolute <laughs> devastation of the three years that it existed uh, uh, and not having necessarily, you know, having the critical acclaim, but not necessarily the, 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 um, uh, the financial acclaim. Uh, and mm-hmm. it didn't help that I, I made one of the dumbest, de- even though it was one of the most awarded deals uh, uh, in California at the time. Uh, uh, it was the dumbest deal in the world to sign. Uh, and there's a lot of those in San Francisco, uh, (laughs) but ultimately, um,
0: and what year, what year are we talking at that that point?
3: That was, um, uh, the, the, the Lafitte opened in 2009. Mm. Uh, it closed in, uh, 2012 and, uh, uh, and, almost it, like literally within 15 days of its third year anniversary. And, uh, uh and it was this, you know, again, it was a heart wrenching gut siege destruction. You know, it was just horrifying. And, yeah. um, you know, again, I had a lot of really, really cool friends that loved me and supported me and wanted to, and got behind me and said, here's what we can do. We're going to surround you. We're going to take care of you. And, uh, uh, and lifted me up and allowed me the opportunity to, to, Lick my wounds enough to, to pull it together to ultimately go on and, and be a part of uh, 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 Iron Chef and then Food Network Star and a host of other programs. Uh, and in that process, in being a part of um, the Food Network thing, <laughs> uh, uh, my the agency that I was working with at the time said, hey, you should move to New York. We can get you a lot more work. And the, the agent the, the, the network wants you here. And and like literally moved here and within 90 days, like nothing. (laughs) Yeah, that was a nice bait and switch. Um, But what I realized was that. um, And and again, my family is originally from the East Coast. My dad's from New Jersey, uh, from Pleasantville. Uh, My mom's from Ohio, from Cleveland. Uh, So. I, and, and the, all of my family is from the East coast. So okay. I, I was the last of my direct line to move from the West coast back to the East coast. My entire family had over the, over the years, uh, trans transported back and forth. And then finally everybody had sort of settled here in the East and the Southeast. And, uh, 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 so returning or coming here, I, right, the returning to the East coast, uh, uh I, I just immediately felt at home okay. and okay. realized that, like i had found found my place because I I wasn't comfortable in San Francisco. I wasn't mm. comfortable in Los Angeles any longer. I can go back for a visit. I can spend, you know, a week, a month, a couple of months, but I'm not myself there. Mm. I'm myself here okay. And, okay. and I'm comfortable in my skin here. I like the lifestyle that I can lead here uh and in thinking of Growing a family, it was the only place that I felt comfortable in doing so. Uh, and certainly, that's the last four years has been very tough <laughs> in being capable of saying that. I was very, uh, as everyone has been, very, uh, uh, or 85 million Americans were uh, fearful of what may have occurred had the election gone a different way. Uh, yeah. And fortunately for all of us, uh, uh, that didn't occur. Uh, because I'll I'll tell you I, I was one of those one of those people that said you know if if it does not go the way we need it to go, we're going to have to really consider leaving because I can't, I couldn't subject my son, uh, and his growth through another four years of what, the garbage that we we've, we've been currently living through. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, let alone it's just it's it's not safe. It's just not yeah. safe. Right? As an African American, it's just not safe. So yeah. sad, unfortunate, but the sad reality of this uh, of the, the world we live in right
0: now. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that, I think a little bit more as well. And I think that, you know, obviously you've chosen to open a restaurant in Harlem. I think, you know, one of the things that you talked about when you opened was, look, if you go north of 77th street or something, there was at the time, like one Michelin star place. There's very few fine dining places it still right. exists
3: it's still it's it's there's uh, above 77th there is only one michelin star restaurant uh right. and it ain't us <laughs> sadly it's not us right now
0: but um but yeah well what but, but talk us through that decision and and how you look at you know Harlem as a community relationship to Manhattan as a whole what you're trying to do with reverence and and then we can sort of walk through to what's actually happened, you know, in the pandemic, but what was the oh, original, original thinking?
3: So the original plan and, and, uh, and I had kind of retired from the restaurant business after Lafitte. And I said, you know, I, I don't know necessarily if I really want to build another one. And, and I made that stupid statement when I, after I closed my first restaurant and then turned around and built Lafitte. Um, but, but I said, you know, okay, if I, you know, Dominique, uh, uh, uh and several other close personal friends who are part of my, actually now part of my advisory board for this restaurant um all said look you and Tyler for Tyler Florence put his foot in my ass about it said you need to build another restaurant and you need it to be a representation of who you really are like it needs to be who you are and he said that to me on a, a on a, a flight we because I was living by coastally for about a, a year, year and a half, uh, we would always end up catching the same, uh, 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 flight back and forth. So we would end up, and there were a handful of other people that we would see all the time, at the same time. And anytime we would get a chance to sit together, we would, you know, switch seats or whatever, to switch, sit together. And we would talk the yeah. whole flight. And he just like, he was so adamant about, uh, uh, about building something else and building something publicly, because you know he knew about he was well versed and clearly understood uh, uh, about my success in in underground restaurants, uh, and, and you know he didn't mind that I kept doing that, but he really wanted to see me build something bricks and mortar for the, for the public again. Uh, and our our both of our restaurants in San Francisco were literally a two minute walk from each other. Mm. Um, uh, so, um, I've been thinking about it. And you know, kind of loosely, and um, my the, my friends were all pushing for it, and I I I was living. I just started living here in Harlem with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and the mother of my son, uh, and we were living over here on 138th and Fifth Street, and just getting a takeout, a healthy takeout order of quality-driven food was impossible, impossible. I was telling a joke the other day about, we were talking about delivery fee charges and, you know, because we've just started delivery ourselves and uh, yeah. the excessive amount of money it costs to get food from here to there. And, like, I understand uh, the the premise, but, like, I had donuts delivered one day uh, from a, 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 I think, from uh oh, I can't remember, Donutery or something like that. And uh, uh, it cost me 60 bucks for (laughs) delivery of donuts. Now, you know, they were damn good donuts and it was a huge box, but still 60 bucks in delivery fees. Um, And and it just frustrated me that every time I wanted to get a decent meal, my wife and I had to get into a cab or or the subway and travel 30 to 50 blocks. And uh, I just didn't feel it was justifiable. I didn't feel that, you know, it's like, there is good food here in Harlem and there are good practitioners and there are people that truly put their heart and souls behind what they're doing. But sadly, there's not a tremendous amount of diversity. And the, you know, in my personal opinion, uh, I feel like the quality can be much higher. Yeah. That when you look at other parts of Manhattan, uh, that you don't see the range Styles, techniques, and quality that you do—you know—it just it doesn't exist. Uh, and I knew that what I do could complement this area, this demographic, and that uh, that they deserved what I do, and that when I, you know, when I take an example like Jean George or Mark Meyer or uh, Danny Meyer, you know, I look at what they've done in Lower Manhattan. And I look here in northern Manhattan and it doesn't exist. It's like something's wrong with that picture. So I felt like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're doing this with a, a much bigger goal in mind. It's not about just building one little tiny bespoke restaurant, it's about building an infrastructure and an amenity that covers, that can ultimately cover a multitude of different. Price points and and ideas and thoughts to bring a resource and a, and a style and a a new level to what can exist here uh, yeah. artistically, financially, you know, uh, 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 food wise. Because uh, there's only yeah. so much, so many ribs, fried chicken, and 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 yeah. catfish and biscuits you can eat <laughs> in a lifetime, or pizza and burgers you know and and i think that all chain food restaurants need to go the fuck away okay. out of harlem
0: and how how did that just going back to that feeling like because obviously you've been through such ups and downs opening restaurants closing restaurants the heartache you know personally i you know i've opened businesses i've had to lay people off i had to you know and i know that there's this like tension between this thing where you're like oh my god i'm going to end up doing this again and you can't stop yourself right like it's just this inevitable how does that feel for you?
3: <laughs> yeah i it's the forgetful stupid stupid moment when you know you know like what the what the the am i doing why am i doing this what like what good intent is like yeah it, you know and again it comes like all i can explain it to is this this is what we do yeah it's what i do like i what you know so we were as we were getting going through the process of opening up and and uh, uh we'd signed the deal and we had had some some difficulties with some of the paperwork and uh, we'd actually started to get into a fight with the landlord already hadn't even gotten under construction uh, uh and uh <laughs> which should have been a significant red flag uh, <laughs> um I, you know my, my my wife said to me she said and and this was at the point as well where I just found out you know we had just found out that she was pregnant, so you know turn the volume up a little a little bit beyond eleven yeah, yeah and um and I was struggling like I had a I had a window of opportunity where I could have just folded it up and walked away yeah. and said okay we're going to take a little bit of a financial hit for it but it's not significant enough that it's going to deter us from you know going down the path and at at maybe in a couple of years or something, but, you know, we can steer away from this. Now we will take a financial loss. And she asked, you know, and she said, well, will you do? <laughs> and, and it was like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I have no clue. I yeah. like, I don't want to go back to TV. You know, that's not what I really want to do. It's never what I really wanted to do. I gave it a good shot it was entertaining. I enjoyed doing it, but it's not, it's not the life that I want the life of lifestyle I want to leave. Uh, uh, cause I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll end up being one of those really crazy douchebags that I, that I grew up with. Uh, or, um, or yeah, just, you, you gotta do it. You just, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just like, there's no, the, again, it's like the, the, the decisions made, you know, I, again, at the time, 55 years old, it was like, what am I going to do? Like, this is who I am. Like, let's not, let's not kid ourselves.
0: Well, I feel the same way sometimes. I feel like I'm unemployable, you know? And so I got to just do a silly thing and that's it. And you can sort of dress it up. Like, I don't know if you, someone just put me onto this guy, Joseph Campbell, who wrote this whole thing about the power of myth. And, And it's all about how, you know, we as a, Uh, human race like we there's people who just got to go and do these adventures you know and they have to they they can't you can't stop them it's just what they got to do whether it's jesus or muhammad or or whatever and i'm not you know it's a little grandiose but it's like you got to just do the thing you know
3: yeah yeah it it just yeah you you get to again it's sort of like you're meeting these different event horizons and you walk through the threshold and you say okay this is you know again this is who I am and I accept that and hell or high water, I'm going to do it. And yep. that's, you know, again, it's that's it, where, where it kind of boils down to with what we're doing today, it's like, you know, we, we we bought the e-ticket, we are going to, and if you haven't been to Disneyland in the seventies, you may not get that reference, but.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a little bit before my time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You,
3: um Well, it used to be at Disneyland, you would get these passbooks. Uh huh. And it, it was A, B, C, D, and E tickets, oh, right? Okay. And okay. and for the different rides. So, like the A tickets were like the the little slow, you know, choo choo train or something like that, or a B ticket was to take the monorail or whatever. So, all the big, gnarly rides, the big roller coasters and stuff like that, where the E tickets, you know, those were the the, I'm going to lose my poop somewhere on the, on the tracks here. And, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the small world was like a B or something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you get these cool passbooks, and, and yeah, they did away with that years ago, but uh, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, those are it. it. so special. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you don't want to wait those, right? Yeah. No, no. I'm sure, I'm sure somewhere in some storage locker someplace, uh, my mom's probably got a, 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 a whole pack
0: of those, those yeah, e-tickets yeah. left. So. Well, so, so, so reverence is you're using one of your e-tickets, right. And, uh, and, and you're choosing to do that, you know, not just, you're saying not just for this restaurant, but potentially for other stuff in the neighborhood and trying to think about that. And I, I think that like, you know, if you, if you listen to food media and you read food media and I, I think like generally people, you know, people read stuff, About obviously different communities having access to healthy food and food deserts and that kind of thing, but you know, very few times do people talk in a very concrete way. Like, what does that really look like, and how does that, you know? So, so what do people need to know about that?
3: Well, I mean, it's shocking. I think that not enough people really truly understand. You know, Uh, and I think that again, the pandemic has set has given some sort of pulled the covers off of quite a few different things. the, you know, uh, obviously, in um, uh, uh, just uh, in racial terms, in uh, economic terms, in so many different areas, you know, for from our from the the leadership in our government, uh, city, state, local, federal, you know, it, failure all the way up and down the chain. Uh, yeah. that that the systemic broken promises the the, the, the uh, impropriety the you know the fact that you know they're fighting it out in Congress over liability protections uh, uh, that's not meant for the small businesses but are that are being pushed because large corporations have forced people to do risky high-level shitty work through all of this and they don't want to be liable for it they don't want to take the responsibility for it even though they're the cause of it. You know, it's like, come on, you know, and that again, it's like we're we're looking at this massive broken system and it took, you know, speaking of the pandemic, you know, it took all of two weeks for the restaurant industry to absolutely implode, you know, like (laughs) the wheels came off overnight. You know, and like none of us, like we all went, yup. (laughs) What did you think was going to happen? You know, how fragile the infrastructure is, how fragile our system has always been, how unfair and, 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 and inappropriate and, you know, uneconomical the business model is like, you know, and it goes back to saying, it's like, we are, the largest employer in the United States, but our people are treated the worst, and and have been taken advantage of. It is modern day slavery, you know. And that's again, this is part of why I'm an advocate for one fair wage, and 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 uh, that this restaurant is considered a high roads kitchen, and it was, it, it was from day one. And I, you know, like even in San Francisco, I tried to build that restaurant's infrastructure and our systems in place to represent that idea. I wanted to pay my staff more and and I and not just out of the generosity of my heart but because it was fair and be, and I wanted our whole entire restaurant to be equal in how we distributed the wealth that the restaurant took in. And uh, and it was an impossibility because the old mentality, the old that that old ideology that people had to believe in because they were too afraid to see what was potentially on the other side for themselves. And of course, now they're all like, oh, geez, I, you know, that that place was awesome. That system was killer. I wish I could go back to that. And it's like, yeah, in hindsight, yeah, we were doing the right thing. And you just didn't get it. So you shot it in the foot. And I spent most of my time in court fighting it out for what's now state law in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, again, the... the the industry the industry's, you know, it's like where where we go from here as an industry, um, I, there's m- major changes that have to occur. Uh, well, let's, I don't want to say that. Let's, I, I let's would talk, talk about, about that. It. Yeah, well, I, but, I'd like to see, you know, again, I think that it starts with, I think it first starts with representation. And I think that we as an industry have forgotten the amount of immense power all of our voices are and that and and I'm going to speak about independent restaurants I'm not going to talk about big corporate big corp because they are their own entity they have their representation with the NRA the NRA does not represent independent restaurants and small businesses as much as they make quaff and we represent everyone bullshit they don't represent anybody but the big multi-unit multinationals. Okay, let the again. Let's be honest. Let's be transparent and clear about it. You know, when push comes to shove, when when the right the type type of advocacy that's necessary to make our industry better, we are the 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 independents are the last in the line, but yet we are the greatest greatest number of employers. We are the greatest number of of Revenue generators. We should be the leaders, and yeah. so I think that the IRC, now that it exists, needs to grow. I need. I, I think that that we, as all independent restaurateurs, need to join this effort, and that it shouldn't just be a hundred thousand restaurants. I think it needs to be every independent restaurant it needs to be a part of this program, and that we need to have the mechanisms and the lobbies and the 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 the, the money behind getting what we need as an industry, you know, they're going to vote this morning on a, on a, on a, 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 package. Great. Awesome. You're fucking six months late on getting it out to us, but there's some 20 billion, 30 billion in all that's going to go to the airline industry. Yeah. What?
0: Yeah. The whole thing, the whole thing is insane. The whole thing is insane.
3: Like, yeah. I, I'm sorry. What? you know it's like the airline industry yes is is an important piece of our commerce, but food is first. Yeah. <laughs> you know I think yeah. I agree i you know I agree with uh, Jose Andreas that we need a food czar. We need a a a minister or a, a director of agency of food and it's not the FDA. It's not the ATF it needs to be. We need somebody that strictly is working and looking at the the necessities of a better food system, yeah. uh, and and that we shouldn't go back to the old premise of the broken system that exists. It's like we we if we look at this the, the 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 golden nugget in the large steaming pile of horseshit that we're all living through, all of this is that. Yes, it got destroyed. Well, we can rebuild it and we should rebuild it and we should rebuild it in a positive, ethical, (laughs) effective, diverse, fair, and economic way that that's transparent, that has efficacy and true advocacy built into it. Uh, And that, you know, I mean, beyond that, beyond that, we're just repeating the sins of our past.
0: Well, that's the, I mean, that's, I think that's the the sort of interesting, difficult, challenging, hard to kind of imagine next step, right? Because the hospitality industry as a whole, it's not like there weren't issues before the pandemic. There was all kinds of, and, and you've, you know, and you've spoken yourself about, the treatment that you've had in restaurants as a person of color, you know, Dominique Crenn, for instance, was talking about as a woman. I I think we know that like some of those things were, were just unsolved problems in the restaurant industry. And I think before the pandemic, you sort of, you saw, I mean, my perception was you saw a little bit of me too kind of stuff where people were getting called out, like, great. I don't think we saw it in terms of racial discrimination at all before the pandemic. Um, you know, yeah it's, it's it feels like all these things are like coming. I think you know?
3: that, that racial disparity within the industry and it's certainly part of the new mandate that I'm living is not just calling it out, but setting a standard and and making people not making people, I should say offering people the opportunity to live up to a better, System live up to a better promise uh, 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 and take actions to actually facilitate a better environment. You know, uh, uh, and and it's not going to be. You know, I mean, again, and we look at people like uh, Michelin and James Beard, and like they have enormous problems that they have to solve. You know, they've awarded. Uh, uh, there has been. A lack of transparency, a lack of diversity, a lack of of efficacy within those organizations, and you know I I I applaud them for saying okay we're stopping. We're going to take a reflective look at ourselves and really try to try to hopefully fix this problem. And they've got some huge problems to solve, and it's there's not going to be any easy decisions about how to resolve those issues. Um, you know obviously. With World's 50 Best and with, with all of these agencies, it's no different than, and again, like we talk about the fact that James Beard and 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 all this stuff is, all, is like the Oscars and stuff. They all have the same issues. They're all talking about this. They are literally all talking about the same issues. Yeah. You know, about small independence, about... <laughs> transparency and efficacy within, within diversity, within their organizations, within the, 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 from their management to their, 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 uh, judging to their standards. You know, I mean, I would, you know, frankly, I wouldn't want to be them because they, you know, like it's going to be so difficult to try to figure out just the simple fact that, okay, let's say, you're, we're, you know, again, they divided it up amongst regions, right? You have the four different regions that, that they consider for nominations and for awards. But how do any of those, like if you're some little podunk spot that's in the middle of a block that's undescript, but is doing the most insane food imaginable and all of your neighbors know about it and maybe a little part of your city knows about it. Or maybe that restaurant's in a small little tiny borough of some, you know, off the shoot road, you know, how does that place get noticed? How does it get the accolades that are necessary to get it on the radar for those people that are making, going through the judging criteria to make an educated example and yeah. that- the, the, the people that have big PR engines and marketing machines. And, you know, I can't begin to tell you how, again, in going through this pandemic and seeing those people that have stepped up and taken actions and, and have said one thing and done another. <laughs> and there have been a sad quantity of those paper tigers that that have all existed uh, uh, that are PR machines, that are marketing machines. And, and I, you know, I won't... Don't throw mud at specific individuals, but they know who they are. They know that they talk a mile of shit, they show up for a photo op, and then they fucking disappear and they don't really do the work. Yeah. And, and, and and like I'm I believe in those people that don't say shit, but just show up and do it. That's that's that those are the people that I believe should get the awards and and the respect. And you know, I mean. Not not to toot my horn, but like again, my belief is is that we're a part of a hospitality industry. We're supposed to be here for our people when the shit gets tough, you know. And right. I, I'll give I'll give my crew all the accolades. They they even though they are just as high risk as I am, they show up, they protect themselves, they stay safe, they they keep themselves like we have a little pod. We keep ourselves tight and secure. Yeah. To make sure that we're protecting yeah. each other, you know, we yeah. do all we follow the protocols that are necessary to, you know, to the best of our ability, and you know, we're a little lax sometimes, but. Well, you know, again eight months of it
0: yeah well th- well let's talk about that right so because you you've been it eight months i mean i can't believe you just said it but it's true right so you you start in march right i'm imagining in march there's that one week period where you're like oh wait a minute this is real and now it's happening and now it's it's kind of over right
3: we were we were starting to see effective effects of the pandemic in january Uh, We watched our numbers drop off. We watched because Mm -hmm. at that point, in only being open like three four months, we were already we were we were seeing a lot of tourism, and a lot of culinary tourism, which was great because again, you sort of go through these evolutions of of exposure. You get the locals and the early adopters and the bloggers that come rushing through, and then they're gone after six weeks, and then it slowly starts to saturate beyond that, and then you get a lot of tourism food tourism that comes through. And then that helps to sort of stabilize you through as you're building up your local. And we were at that place where we watched this dramatic drop off. And February was the same way. And we were starting to see a lot of locals that were starting to come through uh, uh, at the end of February, into March. And then, you know, we, I had already started making plans on how we were going to handle what I knew was going to be an eventual level of restriction and how yeah. we could operate safely to try to protect yeah. ourselves yeah. and protect even not knowing or understanding the the, the virus at all. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, uh, you know, being a child of a physician, you know, you kind of understand a few things about getting a, getting a cold. Uh, yeah. So we were already starting to prepare for taking actions and planning to stay open and, uh, and meet the city's guidelines. And then, you know, they went from you, you have to have reduced to 50% reduced to you're closed in a matter of three days. Yeah. Uh, and we were in the middle of service when we got the announcement that we had to be closed the next day. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. shut it. So a long night shutting it down. Yeah. Everybody went home. Everybody stayed safe and we were communicating the whole time. Uh, and fortunately for us and my relationship with, with the talk organization, they reached out to reached out to me and said, Hey, look, we're going to, we're going to try to get you back to work. Are you guys game? And it was like, let me talk to my crew, talk to the crew. Crew was like, let's go, whatever you need, boss, you know, everybody stay safe, stay locked down. I'll let you know what we're going to do. And within a week we were up and running. And, um, again, we were the only (laughs) real for a little while there. We were like one of the only restaurants in Manhattan on the talk platform that was operating Mm -hmm. everybody else, all the fine dining units were all gone. So for a few weeks we were sort of the sort the super sore thumb, and what's for me, you know, as much as I love and I I love talk, and and they have been an incredible business partner with us uh, through the last year, um, uh, and my friendship with Nick Conis has just been growing, which is just he's an amazing character. Uh, uh, the the you know, and they're a group of people that they say one thing, then they just fucking do it. Like there's just no question about it, which is. I couldn't ask for a better, a a better business partner. Um, The, uh, uh, the difficulty that we find, and again, here is, is I purposely built a restaurant here in Harlem to provide an amenity and provide a service. And like, I went, so Valentine's day comes along and I'm like, okay, I don't want to cook. Like, I want to cook. I'm cooking for everybody else, but I want to do something special for my wife because she's my food every day. So what are we gonna do? So I decided I was gonna order something on an out on another talk from another talk restaurant okay. to bring in a, a, a nice. Do you know that? And like we live in Harlem, but not like way up, you know, we live in Lower Harlem. Do you know that I couldn't get a single fucking restaurant to deliver? Not a single restaurant that that I that did. that was on the talk platform. So we're literally the only restaurant on the talk platform that delivers for, for, from lower Manhattan all the way up to the Bronx, all the way over to Brooklyn. Which is, you know, I, I, I (laughs) called, I I called Nick Conus and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Like, oh my God, are you joking? Like, I can't even get a decent meal. And he's like, yeah, we got to fix that. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you do. Like, holy crap. Like, yeah, you know, and this is again, this is the disparity that this is one of many things that are connected to the greater disparity. The, the fact that that northern Manhattan is is and the Bronx are technically classified as food deserts, you know, all the services, all the warehouses, all the factories, you know, it's like chef warehouses spitting distance from this location. We see their trucks go by every hour and yeah. all is not just around the corner, but yet None of that yeah. food ends up here. Yeah. You know, and it just, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is,
0: it, You know? And so, and so you've responded, obviously you're doing the bento boxes. Right. Um, and I guess, I don't know if you think you've got yourself in this position where you can just sort of ride out the pandemic as long as it lasts to get a vaccine and get people back. I don't know, but like, like, I guess, is, is any part of you uh, able to think about the next step and like reopening and the future and stuff like that. And so, and so what do you want to, what do you want to see like for your restaurant, but also when it comes to one fair wage, when it comes to, you know, reopening, when it comes to solving these problems about food, just not being available in your neighborhood, what are you hoping to see for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months?
3: Well, again, <laughs> the way we built reverence uh, uh, around the level of efficiency and, and a different business model for success, because, you know, I've had out, I've had two other bricks and large bricks and mortar. I've had seven different small businesses uh, that have been food related that, that I've owned that haven't had the outcomes. I mean, the only thing that has successfully ridden it out for 15 years has been my underground restaurant, you know, and that's built around, we just get it done. Not, you know, no messing around. We don't let anybody get in our way. We don't care. You know, we don't follow any governmental or (laughs) set standards of rules that, that we feel interfere with us accomplishing the goal of putting out a great experience and putting out great food. You know, I mean, we don't do illegal bullshit, but we just do our jobs to the best of our ability. And we don't allow any, any agency to stand in our, our way in, in accomplishing that goal. And and it's it, we finally had to agree to put it in storage uh, 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 a couple of months ago, uh, and it's it's very sad because it's it's if it's definitively like the one thing that I think could really be really cool right now, but it's also <laughs> I, I don't want to work in a hazmat suit. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't
3: trust people and their stupidity. You know, and that you know that's a whole another conversation that we can certainly cover here, but. Um, I, you know for me i think that for 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 reverence for this organization uh, and again the goal has always been to build three to five units within the harlem community uh, as a series of different amenities that are all food related and quality food driven and um, uh, and, and and at different price points so if i you know i'm I think back to the sort of Tony Robbins philosophy of emulating other people that have been successful that you that have sort of roadmapped a, po- a process to success for you. Uh, if I look at Mark Myers, if I look at if I look at uh, uh, Dominique Crenn, and you know they started out with the nucleus of their fine dining restaurant and then branched out from there, and that was the philosophy that we started out with. Of course, we've had to now amend that philosophy. And reverence has become a series of different things. You know, again, we're we're it's not that we're chasing, we're trying to be logical. You know, I spent two years developing the core business foundation and idea and, and operation for reverence itself as a fine dining, sit-down, small, impact restaurant. And that all went out the window, <laughs> the, the first shutdown uh what we've gone through in the last 8 months is uh, is a period of time where we were reactionary where we weren't planning anything that we were just trying on, uh, on a day to day how are we going to do this how do we do this safely how do we try to represent uh, who we are without turning into another hot chicken place or you know it's like how do we do that and yeah. Um, uh, and putting that out to my board of, uh, of advisors and having those conversations and trying to figure out what's fair and equitable and reasonable and still somewhat sustainable. And yeah. I mean, I mean, in all honesty, we haven't paid rent since March. And I, I, every month we don't have the capability of doing it. I would pay rent if we had the capability of doing it, but we're, you know, this restaurant in its first three, four months was profitable. First restaurant I've ever owned. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a big deal. People don't even realize how big of a deal that is, you know? Yeah. Oh, shit.
3: This is going to (laughs) work. This could actually work. And it was. And and I was so proud about the fact that that this, all this hard work and this idea and and letting all of these other voices come in and help me to make these very big decisions about what we were going to do was actually starting to take foot. And, you know, again destruction (laughs) so now because so many things have happened and occurred in the last eight months it's it's what what's the next year going to look like because I don't think it's just you know a we had to get out of the reactionary place and trying to outthink these idiots (laughs) mayor de Blasio governor Cuomo uh having to try to outthink their bipolar (laughs) <laughs> uneducated, non-data-driven decision basis, uh, uh, as much as they may profess that that's how they're making decisions, there's, it's so much <laughs> acrimonious bullshit that, that, and how these guys throw a dart at a board and how they make a decision, you know, it's, I'm telling you, it's a bunch of magic eight ball bullshit. So, <laughs> um, you know, we sit down and and, and have said, okay, here are, the, here, are the things, here are the resources that we need. Here's the things that we can offer. And how can we, and I, I sit down and I talk to my staff about it. It's like, what are we doing that we can do better? How can we do this better? How can yeah. we offer this in a way? And what we found is, is that the things that we are currently doing, the things that we're continuing to do, other people are emulating. So we know we're on the right track when we start seeing other big name restaurants putting shit up that's identical to what we've been doing for the last six months. And it's like, Okay, that's cool. <laughs> good on them, you know? Uh, almost down to the pack. I mean, not almost. Down to the packaging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Complete emulation. It's like, all right, yeah. hey, I'll be the first one to tell you. So I see somebody with a good idea, I'm going to rip it off. And I'll tell you I'm ripping you off because it's a good mm-hmm. idea. So, um, I, I, you know, I think that what I, I'm, again, what I'm starting to come to realization is, is that, fine dining is going to be a very difficult, not just a very difficult sale. I think people really want it, but it, it's just not safe to do. It's not like the point of contact, you know, I, I, you know I, like I see that per se is doing, you know, their service, they did all their last service last night and all that, and I think that that's lovely. And, I, and, you know, again, you know, in the same respect that like Madison said, we're not doing anything until 2022. And again, that was a big decision it made the right sense. Uh, I, I still see us, you know, again, because of our size, because of our, our, our financial standing, uh, which is shit, uh, and, and, you know, digging a massive debt hole. Um, and again, I have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to take that debt on for the rest of my life, uh, which hopefully it won't be the rest of my life, but that it'll at least give us a fighting chance to kill it. Uh, in a matter of time, but, you know, it's like with a thinking of like, okay, I've got a three-year debt model. Well, now that three-year debt model is a five-year debt model. And then probably by the end of this, I'm going to be looking at seven to 10 years of a debt model uh, uh, in realistic terms to to get through to the other side. But its survival continues to allow us the opportunity to continue to build and to grow. And I think that what reverence may become, and like, we've started the soup store thing. And again, like, it's something that I've done my entire career. I'm actually really good at making soup. Um, it was something that I wanted. Uh, and I felt like it might be, again, to offer something of high quality at a lower, at a lower uh, uh, price point to allow people to, you know, stay fed uh, uh, and that we can, ex- by extension, go out and feed people that don't have money or don't have the resources, we can still turn around and say, I got no problem giving somebody a container suit because that's what we should do. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, so I think that reverence may ultimately this location ultimately may become a provisions, uh, uh, outlet where we'll make different types of foods uh, uh, based on, you know, the, more of the grab and go system, but I, I it, we're, I'm still trying to, you know, there's this adoption, uh, that people have to start to understand. And again, a part of our business model was again, prepay, pre-reservation scheduled times that for us as a business model will never go away. Mm-hmm. We are always going to follow that route because that's part of the, 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 the key to our success. And I would like to see more restaurants do it think you have to think about the bigger picture of you are a commodity and you're not unlike a concert or a movie or anything else. You still have to put in, you know, tons of money, tons of resources, tons of effort to get ready up to the showtime, right? Showtime starts at five thirty and it goes to 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whatever. You know, how bad is it? How unfortunate is it? And I have lived through it many, many times where I have produced prepped, staged, put all these people in place, all dressed up, ready to go. And then no one shows up. And, you know, and I was talking to a, a, a relatively powerful restaurant tour in Lower Manhattan, and she and I were talking about her restaurant. And, and, and again, she was one of those, she's one of those people that I had conversations with in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, it's that two things, two sides of the, the coin right now. It's like either we're going to get federal assistance and they're going to save us all. Or, Nothing's going to fucking happen. And the landlord's going to kick us out. Like there's no gray area and we're in the same boat. Either we're going to get federal assistance and get saved or eventually they're going to pull the reins off the the commercial rents and we're going to, the landlord's going to kick us out. And that's the way it is. Um, it's a shitty 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 place and i again i hope the governor lives up to his word and that he will protect us to get to or come up with some form of a solution to save this industry because there's no other way um
0: yeah and there's and there's thousands of people in the same boat as you and there's you know millions of jobs around the country that depend on it and i i think that you know one of the just like another side of this is i know that you know, for those restaurants that are open, that are doing some kind of outdoor service as well, there's there's servers there who are, you know, getting treated like shit and maybe not even get tipped. Sometimes people, you know, expecting people expecting service that is equivalent to pre-pandemic, but then not appreciating that that's not possible and all that kind of stuff here.
3: Here is part of the issue. And again, as as a, a part of the COVID task force, uh, with the Aspen Institute, this is something that we discuss every week that a lot of us, again, I have a closet full of PPE materials, you know, set up to do indoor dining. I could have been doing some format of indoor dining this whole time. Uh, granted, I'd only been, by the governor's standards, I'd only been allowed to have four people in this restaurant, (laughs) which makes fuck all sense. But then, um, uh, the reality is, is that the behavior that we're seeing de- demonstrated by people does not make us comfortable. Like right. I know us. I know my staff. I know my crew. I know our ability to keep ourselves and our clients safe. I know all the equipment, the investment, the, the air filtration, the, the, the UVC systems, all the things that we built and put into place early on. We were ready to go in June, and, uh, and had they let us go to 50%, we would have reopened for indoor dining. Uh, 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 but in, in hindsight, you know, and I was going to give it 30 days to let the people sort of get it out of their systems, all the stupidity out of their systems, so that people yeah. could settle down and that we could deal with more reasonable people. Because again, it, it, it's, I mean, we're technically set up for it well. The way we control our pattern of people that come in, the count, like and we can actually make money at it. Even at fifty percent, this restaurant can make money. Fifty percent, not seventy-five, not twenty-five. Fifty percent. This restaurant has the ability to at least break even. And uh, 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 <laughs> and it's not a lot of people. It's like sixteen people, you know. Um, uh, the, the, the The difficulty is, and and I have tons of photographs and evidence is the fact that people don't just aren't getting it. And I I get everybody wants to return to what they they perceived was normal. Those days, just not unlike 9-11, those days are over. They're gone. They're in the past. The world has changed. It's never going back to what you think was normal. Normal now is is you got to wear a fucking mask. You got to wash your hands. You have to keep socially distanced. Those things are going to exist for the next several years, you know, uh, because we still don't know enough. Great, there's a vaccine. You still don't know enough, you know. In the next six weeks, we're going to see, you know, the the outdoor dining has been a distraction. I didn't want to spend, and I know guys that have spent $20,000, $30,000 building up these monster things, those igloos. That, yeah. And what's really funny is, is they haven't said it yet, but this, the the email that went out to all New York tours that, that have liquor licenses, uh, in the bottom of the email, there was a statement in regards to what constitutes a safe outdoor structure, or in, in essence, alluding to what indoor versus outdoor means. Yeah. Right. 99% of the, the the COVID incubators that people built all over this city don't meet that requirement. Yeah. You can have two walls. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: yeah. <laughs> <All
3: right. laughs> that yeah. means
0: No, I mean the more you build up the outdoors, the more it's the indoors and, and then you're back where you started. Yeah. And basically
3: uh, these, these people built built in heated, enclosed, outdoor buildings, you know, which are just adjuncts and none of them are (laughs) movable. So Wednesday, (laughs) Wednesday, when this massive storm dumps all that crap, Uh oh my God, it's going to be a shit show of epic proportions because we're going to get a massive dump of snow you know what it's like when it first hits, you know what it's like when, when the city is trying to dig itself out. And all okay. of those things right. that are in the street yeah. and they're gonna tell them that you have to remove them, yeah, or they're gonna get plowed. They, they, oh, it's gonna okay. just be mm-hmm. oh my but, god, it's gonna be horrific. And like it's it was a it was inevitable. It wasn't even yeah. a, a matter of, of if it or won't it, it was inevitable and it's going to the 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 parade of stupidity is going to occur on Wednesday. And, you know, again, it's like it's one of those things where there are very, very few people. And, I, and I'll say this. My favorite bar in, in Manhattan is a little place called Cell Rose. Uh, and they, they've done it right, you know. And they, the way they've built their outdoor structure, the way they've done their layout, the way they've set up their operations, the way they're they're serving. Like they are one of the best examples of a restaurant operation that's just done it right and 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 i use them as an example when i when i speak at, at the different agencies and stuff like that and i show pictures of how they built their outdoor structure it's beautiful it's laid out but they have the structural ability to be able to do that because they have this massive sidewalk you know yeah. uh, uh that allows them that that uh, that ability to be able to do that and places like vix could build an outdoor enclosure that because they're on a cobblestone, they can set up themselves in, in a way that allows outdoor dining to really actually occur. But again, somebody posted a picture online about New York dining on Wednesday, and it was these people sitting in like an eight-foot snowdrift at a table, all, all up eating frozen yeah. food. You know, yeah. I and mean, that's what it's going to look yeah. like.
0: You know, that's what it's going to be like. Yeah. yeah. So
3: you know, I mean, I, I, and I, and I'll say this, I. And, you know, and again, I'll, uh, the, the, in all transparency, as, a, as a, a, an early investor in, in Farm One a, and investing in it because what, how, and the potential of what you guys were doing and are doing uh, uh, truly made me comfortable about sticking some cash in. And, and I've held on to that through all of this because I believe in it. And the fact, the, the actions that you have taken through this pandemic... Uh, we've fired a lot of business partners for services companies that we've been doing we we've, we've dumped a lot of people because of their behavior uh, and 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 their their efficacy in how they how they have conducted themselves through the pandemic uh, and it's, it's a lot of this uh, there have been some real surprises and some real discouraging moments through all of this but you guys have been truly an example of being a leader, in doing the right thing, no matter how difficult it's gotten, and you know, I know for the fact that you guys have had to put a lot of staff on uh, on the street for for a period of time, and I know that I know having to do the same, the difficulties in making those decisions because you want to be there for your people, sure. and, but yeah. that you've extended and recreated a program that ultimately I think is going to be something that's going to carry forward. That you've invested the money, that you've invested your time, money, and efforts wisely to be able to continue to grow. And I mean, even for us, you know, I look at that and I think to myself, okay, if I'm going to do go to all this effort to pivot and create all this stuff and all this material and logos and packaging, you know, all this crap that we never had
0: any <laughs> need for. Yeah, yeah. You know,
3: yeah. as we were operating, like if you asked them, well, can I take this home? The answer was no.
0: Oh.
3: <laughs> can I get a takeout? No. Yeah. Uh, can I get it delivered? No. That was straight up always the answer. And now it's a different, it's a different world. It's a different story. Yeah. And this is what, not just to survive, but I think that as a business, it's, a, it's an evolution of something that we can do for, again, for our community and, 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 I believe in Farm One because of the quality of what you're doing, the, the technology that you're utilizing, the footprint, the, the the green tech nature of what you're doing is important for, for our society, for the world, for the fact that I know that blocks away, granted, the other end of the city, that if I need something fresh, incredible, you know, like, I, I know it's, you're just a, mi- a few minutes away. And
0: well, that's great, man. That's why we're here. Yeah. And yeah. It,
3: especially on the East Coast, year round. And that's incredible. And, you know, and it's like, um, you know, like we did the Farmer's Share program, which I love the subscription model for this business. And I like, I'm trying to think about uh, it's something that we're work, trying to work out for with Soup Store and trying to create sort of a, a subscription model that I think would be fun and entertaining. And we want to do yeah. something for, uh, January, since everybody's, you know, we're going to do a pretty hardcore. I'm, I'm, I've been sober almost uh, 35 years, and uh, uh, uh I we're going to do a big, and we've always done an extensive non-alcoholic program here, uh, but we're going to do a really hardcore push for January and do a health mm-hmm. conference because I like everybody else, even though uh, the entire <laughs> the entire staff, we all went on a diet during the summer. Uh, and I think my staff, I know my staff was much better than I was. I still managed to have gained a whole shitload of weight. So
0: <laughs> yeah, January is the time.
3: We're trying to yeah. put together a program in January that I think will be a really cool subscription or a package that we can offer where we can give you access to better quality foods and as well as a right. uh, uh, health regimen and some guidance. And uh, uh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to drag some other people in, in to be involved. And I would love, I'd actually love to see Farm One be a part of that idea, because again, I like I, honestly, you guys send up three containers uh, for the the farm share. You send three containers of it. The box of greens that you send goes to my house, and I eat them.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I don't. I don't mind. It's good. You know? <laughs> but like you've, but I. I but I got to say that you're very much a supporter of urban farming. I mean, not just us. And, you know, you've mentioned other farms that you use and, and tell, like, tell us why that's the case. Why do you think it's such a good thing? Well, you know, again, I think
3: I, I think the reality of, you know, and again, this is that Californian part of me. And, right. and uh, when I was living in San Francisco, working in San Francisco, I lived in uh, a dog patch. And Dog Patch was it's nicknamed uh, uh, the, the Gourmet Ghetto, uh, uh, not unlike the Berkeley Gourmet Ghetto, which was a sort of a, a de facto restaurant row. Uh, but we, um, uh, uh, there was an urban winery, there's uh, uh, Fatted Calf, that's where they got their start, and all of uh, uh, it's where, uh, 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 oh God, what's the chocolate company? Uh, Not show, it's a different company that that got their start that makes little cool tiles. And like, there's all of these little tiny bespoke uh, mom and pop uh, 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 small food businesses where Rakuti Chocolates uh, uh, was born. uh, And they have a very large footprint there now. Um, And uh, it's the third street corridor where the new hospital is now. And um, and where ultimately uh, 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 all of the... uh, uh, health and uh uh, pharma tech companies are all in that quarter by the ballpark
2: and um
3: uh i love the fact that living in that neighborhood i could literally get on my bicycle and ride down the block and pick up all kinds of incredible artisan you know high quality products that i could in turn go back to my 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 secret kitchen and cook and uh and the fact that I had a massive rooftop container farm, and we started, uh, we did an annual dinner uh, that we called Seafug, which was the clandestine farmers' uh, uh, urban underground uh, harvest group.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay,
3: all right. (laughs) What I did was, was I organized all of these friends that I knew. That had, again, in California, you have little patches of earth and you've got a fig tree or a citrus tree or an almond tree or, you know. So we would go around to all of our friends' places and harvest all of these fruits and vegetables. And, you know, then we would go up into Oakland, into the trails and and harvest huckleberries and blackberries and uh, uh, just all of this wild and, and mushrooms and everything. And we would do all of these dinners built around all the stuff that we would forage for and we would go out occasionally and go fishing or we would go down to the docks and, and buy fish from the guys that had gone out that day uh, and the crabbers and, you know, and it's like, there's, a, there's such an enormous difference. And, and this, is, this is one of the things when I, when I made my, my farm visit, originally to Farm One was, there's this, this, this enormous difference between your expectation and, and, and reality. Yeah, and um, the the reality of the situation is is that uh, the incredible reality is is that that local, sustainable, high quality, cared for product that not the big mass produced, meat grind, you know, chemically driven yeah. garbage, GMO yeah. garbage that 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 is perpetrated on the on the American public. You know, it's like all you have to do is taste it to see the difference. Yeah. And and it's so dramatically different. And and that for me, it's like I don't, it makes my job easy. I can make something so simplistic and so straightforward in its approach and accent it with high quality products, and people lose their minds. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, yeah. what the hell was that? And it's like, oh, we put salt on it. now granted that salt came from a small mom and pop mexican farm right Right. or it came from a a a small harvest company in 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 uh uh, martha's vineyard oh my god i found this martha's vineyard salt to die for absolutely to die for
0: but that's the whole thing right it's like finding those ingredients and not screwing it up you know it's like 50 percent of the battle and i think no it's great and I, I think it's great that you continue to support, you know, folks like us and, and that you say it. You know, I think what I love is whenever you do an interview, you say it and you also say what you mean and you you fight for the things that, that are important for you because, you know, we got to do it. And especially now over the next 12 months, it's the time for, you know, hospitality to kind of reinvent itself, to re-encover. Um, and so I'm just really glad that you're there to do it. Yeah. I
3: refuse to go I refuse to go back to the old broken ways and like we were we were walking our own path in a lot of respects uh but now that it's even so much more clear and evident I can truly stand out and say yeah and <laughs> that happening and you yeah. you have to force it on people the fact yeah. that we didn't want to take uh, uh in the respect that when we were operating the way we were that we didn't want to take packaging That when a delivery company came, we stopped them at the door and we brought our own containers or we worked Mm -hmm. it out with certain companies like our our fish farm uh, 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 um, uh, uh, or our coffee company, Proyecto Diaz in California or Kipo Vinegar. It's like when they send us stuff, we try to offset the shipping or the delivery or, you know, we want to make sure that like when Proyecto Diaz sends us coffee from California, they don't send it in packaging peanuts or foam wrap and all that crap. They take coffee chaff, which is a byproduct of them making coffee, which is a waste product that would go in a landfill. They yeah. pack all of our coffee and all of our delicates inside this coffee chaff. And when the coffee yeah. chaff gets here, we store it and we use it for our Nukazuki process.
0: I mean, so, <laughs> again, yeah, like, you got to do that stuff. That's no, it's, that's, that's how it works. Listen, Russell. Russell, we could talk forever. We have to. Sh- we have to stop it now. <laughs> um, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us, and thank you for supporting Farm One as well. I mean, that's that's a huge thing. And I know you guys are gonna just expand and expand. And I like, I can see you guys being creative every month and doing new things. And it's inspiring to me. I feel like I've been through some of the ups and downs that you've been through this year as well. Um, and I just want to say thank you, and we're all kind of rooting for you uh, and reverence and the whole team. It's amazing. It's amazing. We, you know,
3: I, the way we survive is is through support and through actions. Yeah. And that right now the actions are, you know, a uh, uh, push and advocate for for the uh, 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 passing the Restaurant Act. Uh, that's a calling your senator, calling your governor, calling your your representatives to get them to push that through uh, Congress and the Senate. Uh, the other way is just by going out and eating and dining out and Amazing. and supporting the supporting supporting local restaurants, yeah. Yeah. independent local restaurants. The
0: chains yeah. are yeah.
3: covered. They're not going yeah. away.
0: Don't go to Olive Garden. Go to your independent restaurant.
3: Yeah. Go, to, go to your mom and pops, uh, you know, and things like, like for us, swag, gift certificates, all of those things. Every single dime makes an impact in keeping us safe, allowing us to continue to do the work to get to the other side of this. Um, and visit amazing. Amazing. Right. us at Reverence NYC.
0: Thank you so much.
3: My pleasure, we'll man. Later, I hope to continue all to talk and let us, again, let us know what we can do to be of
0: service and to be of support.